New Orleans has undertaken a multi-million dollar expansion of its police surveillance powers in recent years, providing the city with an unprecedented ability to monitor public spaces and track individuals. Over the last two decades, similar mass surveillance systems have rapidly spread to cities across the United States, for the most part without any formal oversight or local regulation. As a result, the public is often left in the dark about what tools and techniques the police use to spy on them. This is Neighborhoods Watched, a special edition of Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. In partnership with the Fund for Investigative Journalism, The Lens has spent the past year obtaining and reviewing thousands of city documents to get a snapshot of New Orleans' current surveillance apparatus and the rapid, largely unchecked nature of its growth. I'm joined by government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein. Hey, Michael. Hey, Carolyn. And researcher and designer Caroline Sinders. Welcome, Caroline. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So, Michael, let's begin with how the project started. Yeah. Um, so, from from my perspective, um, I, I've been reporting on um, uh, New Orleans surveillance expansion, data collection expansion, um, since I kind of joined up with the lens. Um, so, for a few years, um, and you know, I've been doing that kind of incremental um, reporting. And then I got a call from Caroline. We started talking about trying to work together to. to take a step back and really try and and look at the surveillance expansion from, you know, a a bird's eye view rather than this kind of incremental beat reporting that the lens usually does, you know, again, try and take that, that bird's eye view. From my recollection, we weren't, we didn't have this project in mind specifically at the beginning. I think the conversation to start was, you know, we should do something bigger, something to get, you know, people to really understand um, how all these pieces fit together. But Caroline, I don't know uh, what your recollection of how this all started was. So I'm, I'm a native New Orleanian and I've been studying uh, surveillance and data privacy and privacy and security in my work for many years, but I don't necessarily live full time in New Orleans. And I work with groups like the United Nations. I sit on a, a, I sit on a special project with them looking at data governance and children and policy related to that. Um, and a lot of the work that I do is looking at like larger technology systems and privacy implications in that. And um, I started to look at the surveillance system in New Orleans just from what I was reading about. So obviously I came across Michael's work like pretty quickly. And one of the things that I was interested in being from New Orleans was just how like the general conversation in the United States when it comes to surveillance actually doesn't focus on mid-sized cities. It tends to focus on things like Chicago, New York, or Los Angeles, but Hmm. um, it doesn't focus on, I would say, like a lot lot of cities other people actually live in. Um, And that to me seems to be places where there's more pervasive surveillance apparatuses. Um, And I've always just been interested too in how surveillance gets sort of folded into smart cities and how how you can sort of convince people to be afraid and then purchase a product that effectively is like limiting their actual privacy, right? They're purchasing different kinds of surveillance tools. And so, um, you know, these are all like a, a series of jumbled thoughts. And I was like, someone should really do something that's a little bit bigger on just, well, what is like the landscape of surveillance in a city like New Orleans? And I, I thought it would be like us focusing a lot on tools, tools and software. And so um, I followed Michael on Twitter and he followed me back. I'm like, yes, okay, this means I can DM him now. And it's not that weird. 
I was like, we should get like a cup of coffee when I'm in New Orleans and talk. And then I was like, this is the idea. What do you think? We should do it. And then I think, you know, Michael and I had had like a, a different, like much more scaled back idea. I think we thought it would be just like a long, like one pager, just sort of on the different kinds of tools, perhaps. And then one of the things that sort of, I think, kind of quickly came out is that, well, there's all these different concerns. And, and then I think the, you know, one of the more unique things about New Orleans is how you sort of interact with this space around surveillance and technology, where it also seems like, it seems like a part of the equation here is also that consumers are purchasing and engaging with like different kinds of privatized surveillance systems, right? So it's things that they're purchasing because they want them or they, they think that they need them. And so this started to turn into a much bigger project. And I think like we've done a beautiful job, especially Michael and really sort of embodying and exploring all the nuances inside of this problem. Right. You talked a little bit already about this, but talk about why the why it's particularly relevant right now. Yeah, I, I think generally it's probably better to talk about the global perspective. I, I think on the, the the local level, I think why this topic is important. I mean, you know, the lens, we do government accountability work. Um, that's just our bread and butter. And, you know, when it comes to something like surveillance and data collection, it, it's this area where we get into this a lot in the piece, but where technology is moving much, much faster than regulations, laws, oversight efforts, you know, community control, community understanding. And because of that dynamic, the amount of accountability that actually exists in the surveillance data collection world, especially, you know, when it comes to local cities, is really lax. Um, and, you know, it's something that Caroline mentioned is that we wanted to show, you know, how these things play out in a smaller city like New Orleans. Um, which, you know, you know, something that we had talked about early on was cities like, you know, New York, for example, they have national, international privacy organizations, privacy advocates, um, you know, technology experts that, that really understand this technology in a deep way, resources that aren't necessarily available to every city in the country. New Orleans isn't, you know, some small town, but again, we don't have those same resources. And so, you know, even some of the informal accountability measures that have popped up um, in some other cities uh, may not exist here in the same way. So again, I'd say from from my perspective in, in the more local work we do, the reason why this is important is again, yeah, a, a real lack of oversight and accountability. And I think in New Orleans, you know, um, when you don't have oversight and you don't have accountability measures, we, we all know what happens. I think one thing that's important to think about is who or what are the forces in terms of driving the general sort of national conversation on privacy and security and those are groups that don't necessarily have deep ties to the South. Um, they're in places like San Francisco, you know, with the EFF, um, or they're in New York with um, Stop Spying NY, um, or they're specific, or they're specific senators from specific locations like Senator uh, Wyden, for example, who's really pushing a lot of the conversation inside of like U.S. legislation on privacy and security. Some of his staff members come from the National ACLU office that was headquartered in New York. But um, you know, surveillance is is a global problem, and one of the things I, I find interesting when we also break it down on, on a local level is sort of reinforcing that a lot of the problems that individual cities are facing, that other cities are facing the same problems. But sometimes we present these sort of issues in something that's only happening in New York, for example, or that this is something happening in San Francisco, but there maybe isn't a lot of solidarity or comparisons to other cities. So one of the things I'm often interested in when I work with consumers is how do I make a problem feel relatable to them and tangible to them? And with surveillance, that is actually sort of 
like looking at it in their own backyard, so to speak, and saying, well, here are some of the things that you're facing, actually, here are some of the problems with that. Um, so some of the work that I do in terms of like consumer education and literacy is trying to also unpack different ideas around well, what does surveillance do and accomplish and like how um, effective is it in the city that you're in. It's something really interesting, you know, to sort of build off uh, the, the more national conversation around security and privacy, which really started in one could argue around 2013 with Edward Snowden's leaks and the NSA of sort of being able to point out what PRISM was doing, how much data was being collected, but actually also how unuseful this massive amount of data collection was in terms of a surveillance uh, state. So one can, a lot of researchers will sort of argue that that was what started, started a more general and in-depth conversation in the United States around surveillance apparatuses and then also the usefulness or success of this kind of like large data collection and what does it yield and how helpful is it in really mitigating different kinds of harm. Michael, who do we have here locally that serve as watchdogs and also provided resources for you for this project? There are certainly a lot of organizations in New Orleans who, who are working on, on surveillance issues. You know, one that we highlight um, in, in the, the project is the Ion Surveillance Coalition, um, which is actually a, an aggregation of a lot of different local groups um, that are involved in a lot of different types of advocacy that have come together around the issue of surveillance and data collection. You know, that includes the, the ACLU, a lot of local uh, criminal justice reform advocates. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that there's a lack of vigor or interest um, in surveillance or data collection in New Orleans at all. And, and I think that there are a lot of people in Ion Surveillance, you know, with superb technical capabilities who, who really understand this stuff in a very, very deep way. But yeah, I mean, there have been a lot of people working on this and, and, and the, you know, there have been a lot of successes, you know, for, from the point of view of these advocates um, over the years. There have been, for all of the expansion that we've seen over the last decade or so, there have been a lot of proposals that local organizations have pushed, have successfully pushed back on. Um, you know, one high profile one, when the city first set up camera system, they were going to force every bar in the city um, to set up a camera on the outside of the bar that would feed live footage back to the city system. That was one where, you know, that one came out and, and the city kind of organized around that and was successful at, at really killing that. So there is definitely movement and action um, in New Orleans around this issue. Uh, it, it just sometimes doesn't have the same financial institutional support um, that exists in some other cities. Um, the, the hiring capacity to have people to, to shuffle through purchase orders all day, um, you know, people to be calling the mayor's office all day and trying to make meetings and, and it just takes effort and time and money. And some roadblocks along the way, getting some of the information you write about public records requests. Talk about some of the obstacles. Yeah, so, so I think when Caroline and I first started talking about this, and even when, you know, we, we, this got really a little bit more official and, and, and Charles was in these conversations and, and we were really planning this out, I think the idea at the beginning was more to give people a real good snapshot of what surveillance and data collection tools exist. So, you know, we had fl flirted with some ideas around put in your address and, and you know, put in where you work and, and we'll tell you every camera you pass on your way to work. Or put in your name and we'll tell you every single piece of data the city has about you, things like that. Um, and then over time, I, I think what we realized, you know, as, as we were going through the reporting and research process was that the information available from the city was simply not good enough to give people that kind of comprehensive snapshot. And, and I think, like you mentioned, we had problems, you know, simply not getting records back from public records requests, public records requests coming back and being blatantly incorrect 
you know, sending those back to get corrected, receiving them, and then dealing with a whole new set of errors and, and you know, uh, inaccuracies in, in those new documents. So um, we spent months and months going back and forth with the city over these public records requests. You know, the city really did not answer many of our questions around this. And, you know, I think that I was getting nervous about putting something forward and, and telling people, here's, you know, a comprehensive list of everything that exists. When going through this process, I was just feeling less and less confident that we were going to find out. And, and not just because of our ability to report this. I mean, I, I have doubts about if any person in city government can really explain to you how this surveillance and data collection network works. I mean, it's, it's we get into this, but it's, it's, it's not just intentional government secrecy. You know, this is a decentralized system that, that does not have any central oversight, that does not have any central register, uh, 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 regulation. There was a big moment in New Orleans where after two years of claiming that, that the city was not using facial recognition, it came out that they had. Right. Um, and, and I think some people read that and, 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 you know, were like, OK, so the city was lying to us. And I, I think that it, it gets more complicated in the fact that many city council members who were reassuring the public that they weren't using facial recognition actually believed that was true. And after it came out, um, the, the, our, our chief of police came out and said he wasn't aware that the practice was going on either. Um, so, uh, you know, that, that's just to give you an idea that it's not just, you know, was the, did the lens have the capacity to, to get this information out? It was, does this information exist anywhere? Um, is anyone compiling this information and keeping track? And, and so, uh, we ran into a lot of issues like that. And so instead of trying to put forth something that claims to be comprehensive, I think we're, we're giving as much detail as we have. We're giving you everything we have, um, but also describing why where we're at right now, uh, it probably isn't possible or it is extremely, extremely difficult to really get a comprehensive look at what this system actually is and what it does. Because it's so Byzantine, it's nearly impossible to have any kind of comprehensive understanding or oversight of it because it's just the tentacles are so long. And just to sort of uh, riff off that for a second, I mean, what Michael's describing is also just a problem that exists in other cities and even in varying, varying forms of government on a more federal level versus like a local level, um, reflecting on a lot of the public hearings we see around um, antitrust or, you know, inviting in social networks to try to describe their processes. You can see where there are the edges of gaps and in information that even senators and congressional representatives have around how technology works. And I think that's also something that this project talks a little bit about. And again, referencing uh, something Michael was touching on a little earlier, it's hard to say if like the lack of knowledge is something that is intentional and or also just like the Byzantine arms of government of which it is, but it's also the fact that a lot of um, civil servants don't have a background in technology. And that's one of the complications we're coming into right now, you know, in this era of this specific kind of consumer technology that's really very easy and cheap to get, um, you know, and that cities can also purchase that the level of understanding of what is purchased and available and what it does we're sort of seeing the literacy fall off of that. And the thing I want to emphasize is that's not just in the city of New Orleans, that's in so many other cities and even on a federal level. And this is, you know, a really big problem that we're encountering. Do um, bureaucrats and civil servants understand what it is that they've purchased exactly or what it does? Do they understand things like encryption? Do they understand where the data is being stored or how susceptible it is to uh, being hacked, for example, or being leaked? Do they really understand like, the accuracy or effectiveness 
of the different kinds of technology that they're purchasing? Do they understand the harms? Can they can they do something like an audit to understand even the trade-offs? And the answer is no. Like most most civil servants aren't equipped or their staff is not equipped to do that. And that's not that that isn't to sort of defer blame, but rather to sort of say this is really where we are in terms of technology impacting society. Like this is a very real reality. And then that's on top of the Byzantine like structure on top of structure on top of top of structure where many things could get lost anyway. Um, you know, this is on top of that. This is another another added complexity that we have to deal with. Piggyback off that as well. Um, we had one New Orleans City Council member who, who compared the process of cities getting involved in these complex technical contracts with someone clicking accept on a on a long terms and conditions page without really paying attention. And and you're know, saying you know that's just how it goes. And you know again, like Caroline was saying, it, you're talking about the resources of a of a city government with limited resources versus big data collection and technology companies that can spend millions of dollars on salespeople to come in and, and convince cities to, to purchase something or sign a contract or that a certain detail isn't important. I mean, you just have to think about the resources that are coming to the table. Um, who's investing more in, in making sure you come to these negotiations with, with the knowledge you need? And yeah, I mean, the other thing on, on the transparency point, yeah, I don't think New Orleans, in terms of our you know struggles getting information, I don't think it's significantly worse here necessarily than it is in other cities. You know, I, I read reporting around the surveillance system in New York a lot. And the struggles that those reporters have in getting information seem to be even deeper than the ones we're facing here. Um, you know, like we know what software is used as a video management uh, system in New Orleans. I don't think that's information that people are able to access in New York through their, you know, state public records laws. Um, so yeah, I mean, again, just piggybacking, this is definitely not a, a New Orleans specific issue. This, this problem of Getting enough information to, to even have this conversation is definitely national and even international. I want to jump kind of deeply into the smart cities technologies. And for example, I want to I want to talk about a couple companies that I noticed in your really detailed reporting about about some of the software and hardware that the city uses in New Orleans. There's two companies that, that I flagged, Carbine and Rapid SOS. And I just want you to explain to the listener how these technologies are used and what safeguards do the public have, if any, or what, is the, what safeguards do the, does the city have to ensure that, that the kind of information that these systems are getting or collecting aren't then being utilized in ways that they don't even know? I think you, you sort of talked about that already, Caroline, but, but explain what smart cities technologies are and problems sure. with smart cities technologies? I think some of the problems with smart cities technologies is that they are coming from like privatized for-profit companies. And so we have to sort of ask about how they're set up and installed with a city. So is the data something that's being held on a cloud server owned by that company? Or is it something that's being held and processed by the city? What kind of information is being fed back from the city that purchased or, or procured the technology? How is that data being fed back in to, to the technology or into the software that the company is holding to create varying kinds of, one could argue, like machine learning or algorithmic models that make them smarter or better? So one of the big issues I see is sort of this blurriness and um, very real opacity of even if a city is, quote unquote, like in control of the data, how much access does that company have and how much then like transparency and assuredness 
does the city have? And then on top of that, a bigger thing to worry about is, does the city know how to ask those questions to ensure that, that there is this kind of safety, um, safety and like sort of like more lack of involvement, again, from this for-profit company. And then another thing to keep in mind is with a lot of software that we're using, a bigger thing to be concerned about is what happens if that company, that private company that is sort of maintaining the software, what happens if they close or sunset the software? Right. So then what happens to the sustainability of that necessarily? Michael, I think you can speak a little more to Rapid SOS, but it seems like from a lot of our sort of research into it, it was this middleman between 911 call centers and then I guess like individuals like with uh, sort of with this data, but it, it seemed very opaque in terms of um, how much they were actually sort of engaging with this data or how often or how much access they had to it. And again, like where, where was a lot of this being stored and really, really controlling or understanding exactly who has access to it. And then how, how is this data being used on a city level, and then again for the company. Yeah, um, I, you know, I, I think just real quick to, to um, you know, just to kind of explain what, what we're talking about when we're talking about smart cities technology. I, I mean, really, it, it's a um, it, it's a movement um, to to kind of get cities to start collecting more and more data from their residents um, and visitors, basically anyone who's in the city, and and by collecting more and more data, improving city services. So um, one one example is um, setting up. Um, you know, the, what's called like an advanced meter on your house. Um, so, so reading your electricity usage at a much more exact rate, which can be useful for a lot of things, which can be useful for making bills more accurate, for identifying what houses probably need to, you know, uh, uh, have more insulation or, or, you know, be more, be made more efficient. Um, you know, they, they can be really helpful in a lot of ways. However, they also bring along privacy concerns. And one of them is that your electricity usage does show things about your life, right? If, if there's a big jump in your electricity at, at 6 p.m. every day, you know, that shows that you probably get home around 6 p.m. every day, right? Like, so there are things that can be learned from data like this um, that aren't necessarily in the intention at the beginning, but can pose privacy concerns later on. Um, and so Rapid SOS is a good example. R- Rapid SOS, um, it does a few things, but but the idea is that historically 911 calls um, haven't been, you know, the police and, and first responders haven't been able to learn that much from, from a 911 call unless the person on the phone really knows what they're talking about. So location data is a big one. Um, location data from a cell phone has typically been pretty inaccurate, you know, to the point that 911 center, you know, knows where you're at within a mile, three miles, five miles, but couldn't find you if you were for some reason disconnected. And so what some of these new um, smart cities um, technologies do is they allow you to, to 911 centers to know exactly where you're calling from. Rapid SOS actually goes a little bit farther. What Rapid SOS does, it's a private company um, that makes um, deals with cell phone carriers, um, with apps that basically allow those phones and those apps to share information with Rapid SOS then Rapid SOS will share that information with a 911 center. So an example is if you've been in a car crash and uh, you call 911, the 911 operator will pick up the call and then on their computer screen right in front of them, um, they'll open what's called Rapid SOS Clearinghouse. And that'll give you a bunch of information taken off that person's phone that will range depending on 
what apps they have on their phone, what car they're driving. So, you know, it, it can give you a really wide range of information. It can, for example, if you have a Bluetooth connected car uh, that connects to your phone, it pulls a lot of information from that. So one example that was given to me is that it can tell you how fast you were driving um, at the moment of your crash, right before you crash. And that one kind of made my ears perk up because it is probably good for a nine. It is definitely good for a nine one one operator to, to have more situational awareness and know kind of the what they're walking into. At the same time, when you're getting into something like how fast were you driving? Now we're getting into potential criminal territory, right? Where is that information going? Now, I to be honest with you, I am not one hundred percent sure about the legal restraints of how this information can or cannot be used. Um, that never was something that was clarified to me. Basically, I was told that this information is not going to be used for prosecutions. It's not going to be used for criminal investigations, but I'm not aware of any regulation or law that actually prevents them from doing so. So, you know, then you have questions of, okay, right now you're telling us you're only going to use this information for, you know, first responders. But if there's no legal restraints on this, where could this go? You know, what could you use this information for tomorrow, for example? With something like rapid SOS, I'm sure that there is like a European equivalency to it. But when you like look at how they describe it, for example, of, of people being able to access like other data sources like Uber or, Siri- or a Sirius XM or like vehicle services, on one hand, it's, al- it's also worth thinking about, well, how is that being fed? And like, how is the consumer aware of how this other information that they have is being fed into this? And do they ever get a chance to like opt out of that? And you know, you kind of can't if you're placing a 911 call, right? right. Um, that's not something that you necessarily get agency or choice in. And I think that's also kind of the insidious layer of smart cities is that there is that is a conversation completely worth having of what kinds of information is is like a citizen or a constituent of a city inadvertently giving up. Um, or rather having taken from them without any of their disclosure or agency in the matter. Right. You're listening to Neighborhoods Watched, a special edition of Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Neighborhoods Watched was produced in partnership with the Fund for Investigative Journalism, which provides grants and other support to independent journalists and news organizations to produce high-quality, unbiased, nonpartisan investigative stories. My guests are Michael Isaac Stein, who covers New Orleans' cultural economy and local government for The Lens. Before working for The Lens, Michael wrote for several publications, including The Intercept, City Lab, The New Republic, and Pacific Standard and Caroline Sinders, a researcher and designer. She works with the United Nations, Amnesty International, IBM Watson, the Wikimedia Foundation, and others. Sinders has held fellowships with the Harvard Kennedy School, the Mozilla Foundation, the Weizenbaum Institute, BuzzFeed, and the Coral Project. Hi, I'm Charles Maldonado, editor at The Lens. Our mission is to educate, engage, and empower readers with information and analysis necessary for them to advocate for a more transparent and just governance that is accountable to the public. That means you can count on us for truth, fairness, and accuracy. But in order to do this work, we need to count on you. Please make a tax-deductible contribution to support our work at thelensnola.org donate. Thanks for your support. Thank you.
Michael, what's going on nationally in other cities around these issues and laws? You know, obviously something that we, we get into and write about a good amount is is how, um, you know, from a kind of regulatory perspective, that this surveillance expansion kind of snuck up on people. The kind of expansion that you've seen in some of these mass surveillance systems, it, it, it didn't happen because, you know, certain laws changed or certain regulations were dropped. It changed because the technology became cheaper and more available and easier to implement. And because of that, cities have been dealing with these rapid surveillance expansions and finding that there aren't really regulations making sure that these things are accounted for, making sure that the public fully understands. And so for the most part in cities across the country, that's still the status quo. There aren't uh, uh, explicit independent regulatory processes for data collection and surveillance technology um, in cities and towns. Um, That's just not the norm. But things have started to change. I mean, especially in the last three or four years, um, cities have started to pass regulations specifically about this local level mass surveillance um, that's been growing. So there's something that the ACLU started. It's called Community Control Over Police Surveillance. Um, And it's a program for, you know, basically encouraging cities to start adopting proactive regulations and oversight measures around this stuff. They have a template ordinance, a template local law that's been passed in, you know, they say it's been passed in 21 cities now um, in jurisdictions covering a total of 17 million people. So obviously that's still a minority of the United States, but a growing number. And basically what the law does, it does a few things, but it institutes um, city council uh, approval of existing and future surveillance technology. So basically when one of these laws is introduced, the city council is supposed to, uh, uh, the city council of that city is supposed to go through all the existing surveillance technology and give explicit approval to use those technologies. And then when anything new comes to the table, that is also supposed to come in front of the city council for a vote as well. There are also um, annual reporting requirements. So any department that uses one of these surveillance technologies would have to report on what they use, how they use it, um, how often they use it, what regulations they have, and what rules they have in place around its use. And the last kind of element to this law uh, is a community oversight committee of some sort. So this is usually some sort of a, a community board that will look at each of these, you know, new pieces of surveillance technology and submit recommendations to the city council when it has to approve or disapprove of them. Um, so that's kind of the the, the legislation that, that we kind of write about in the piece and, and that's being passed in more and more cities. I think the first one to pass it was um, in 2016 or 2017. And since then, again, it's grown to, to you know, nearly two dozen cities. So Uh, that's kind of the national landscape right now. So let me finish this part by taking it back to how do we compare in New Orleans to what you just outlined that's that's happening nationally? Yeah, so so what we have done is we have passed some blanket bans on certain surveillance technology. So um, we have passed a ban um, in in late 2020. Ion Surveillance worked um, for for a long time on on this ordinance um, that and uh, facial recognition, um, characteristic tracking, which is similar to, to what you would think of as facial recognition, except it can recognize outfits or cars or hair color, things like that in, in video. Um, it also bans predictive policing technology, as well as um, cell site sim- simulators, also known as stingrays, which basically they, they act like they're a, a, a like a cell phone tower, um, and they basically intercept a cell phone call and, and allow whoever's using that stingray to listen in on the call or, or to, to gather data from um, that call. 
Um, so those four pieces of technology um, were ultimately banned in New Orleans. However, the ordinance that banned those four pieces of technology was originally much more expansive, and it covered that ty those types of CCOPs ongoing regulations that we talked about that are happening in other cities around the country. So, you know, annual city council review, um, and, and, you know, annual reports on the use of technology. Those were originally in this ordinance that was passed in, in late 2020, um, but they were ultimately stripped from the ordinance. Um, hmm. We didn't get a lot of explanation as, as to why that was the case. I, I think a lot of advocates were, were kind of surprised that that the city cut out these kind of ongoing oversight measures, but kept these more stringent um, bans in place. And, you know, I think a lot of advocates felt like the oversight piece was going to be maybe a little bit easier than the, the bans piece, but um, that's not how it turned out. So yeah, I mean, we don't have those types of oversight or regulatory measures that some other cities have. We do, however, we are on a short list of cities that have banned, you know, specific types of surveillance technology. There was just a conversation I had um, in the process of researching and working on this with Ion Surveillance asking about how they were drafting the the different the different ordinances that they were proposing and, and one thing if I'm remembering correctly that that they had talked about was they wanted to include everything that they wanted um, almost like this like long laundry list knowing that things would be cut out and so I think that's I think that strategy ended up working out really well for them. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, I, I don't remember if, if people were surprised about the facial recognition ban, but I do remember talking to ION surveillance and then saying that they included a lot of different things. And part of that was a strategy, knowing that the city was going to cut out some stuff, yeah. but by having more, there was perhaps more of a likelihood, like more things would potentially pass. Totally. I, I think, yeah, I think that what they would, that what I had heard from them is the only reason they were surprised is because the oversight measures doesn't actually stop, you know, the, the CCOP yeah. legislation doesn't actually stop the police from doing anything. They could right. still do everything as long as they were transparent and reporting on it. Um, right. So, you know, it, it was kind of this odd moment of, you know, why is the NOPD requesting that we take out these oversight measures, but they're, you know, isn't a similar push on these technologies that, you know, they want to use. Although, I will say one, one thing to note here is that there is an effort by the NOPD and at least one city council member to roll back at least the facial recognition ban. Um, what we've been told is that the NOPD is working on a policy around their use of facial recognition. Um, and the plan, at least um, one city council member says, is that uh, the NOPD will bring that policy to the city council and they'll consider reversing that ban. So I, I will say that, you know, th these things were major. Um, there's also apparently some effort to, to roll at least some of it back. Okay. All right. Zooming out here on this and, and our rights to privacy, as we most people, I think, would understand them in the United States, you include a quote from former Mayor Mitch Landry of, of New Orleans from the opening of the Real Time Crime Center. He said, if you are in the public, you do not have an expectation of privacy. And that's been black letter constitutional law for a very long period of time. Is that right? The short answer is no. Um, there have been Supreme Court rulings um, that, that maintain that you have privacy rights in public. One of the things I feel like as an American who like doesn't live in America is like in Germany, there is so much privacy built into the culture. And so privacy is something that is almost is seen as like a fundamental right, but it's then reflected in the law and it's reflected in the culture. And one of the things that I have found interesting being outside the United States is how that when presented with this amb amb 
ambiguity of it could potentially make you safer, that Americans seem more likely to give up privacy in terms of the sort of ambiguity of this eventual safety. You know, when we're talking about constitutionality and surveillance, um, a lot of what we're talking about is, is Fourth Amendment law here. Um, and, and your Fourth Amendment protections basically protect you from unreasonable searches, seizures, and arrests without probable cause. So basically, this is the, the amendment that allows you to walk down the street, and if a police sees you, they can't just stop you and arrest you and search you for absolutely no reason at all. And so there are questions around, does that extend to something like video surveillance? And to go back to Mayor Landrieu's statement, as a general matter, there aren't Supreme Court cases that, that put limits on, on this type of video surveillance. I mean, there absolutely are limits, constitutional limits on video surveillance, but viewing public spaces in a normal, regular CCTV camera has generally been held as, as constitutional. But it does get more and more complicated the deeper into this you get. And, and I won't, I don't want to get, because uh, I could talk about this for hours and hours, and there are books upon books that you could read and, and case law upon case law that you could read. Um, but the short answer is that Landry's statement that it's black letter constitutional, that you have no uh, expectation of privacy in public is not correct. But it gets complicated because part of what the, you know, our right to privacy is based off of is, you know, what is your reasonable expectation of privacy, right? Um, that, that's a, a phrase that people have probably at least heard in the past, but um, it, it's a really hard bar to, to try to gauge because you have to try to figure out what we collectively as a society expect um, in terms of privacy when we walk out our front door. And so, you know, part of what this project has been about is, is how little, you know, information about how this technology works, how much the government can see, how little of that information is getting to the public. And so there are questions around if the public doesn't truly understand, um, know or understand um, how government surveillance works, how much data is being collected from them, you know, how do you establish a reasonable expectation of privacy if you don't know what's going on? Hmm. Um, and so part of the trick in terms of constitutionality and privacy is trying to gauge what we as a society collectively expect when we you know, go into public. And, um, you know, those questions are really hard to settle. And that's why I think projects like this are important, um, because if we don't have these conversations about what we should, you know, have as human beings, as dignified people walking around, um, then those protections can kind of start fading away. If we don't actually establish as a society, here's what we want. Hey, I don't want you to see me all the time. I don't want the government to be able to access my uh, computer camera all the time or, or be able to listen into my phone calls. If, if we don't establish that as an expectation that we have collectively, then it is not an expectation we have collectively. And then that has implications when it comes to our constitutional protections. But as Caroline mentioned, um, especially in America, I, you know, I, I don't know, I don't know how strong that, that uh, kind of intrinsic desire um, demand for privacy is when, when you weigh it up against things like public safety. Um, so, you know, I, I think that the issue around privacy and our expectations of that is very fluid. And so some, a statement like Landers, I guess, to bring it back to that, it, very, very oversimplified. What is the answer to the average law-abiding citizen who says, watch me, I've got nothing to hide? I always sort of internally giggle because there is a really famous Edward Snowden quote, which goes, arguing that you don't care about the right to privacy because you have nothing to hide is no different than saying you don't care about free speech because you have nothing to say. Hmm. And then I always like to follow that up with a Cardinal Richelieu quote. He was a 
really horrific French 17th century clergyman and politician, he says, if one would give me six lines written by the hand of the most honest man, I would find something in them to have him hanged. And the reason I think both those are really important is when we bring it back to the idea of surveillance is surveillance is a form of, of data in a way, but we assume that any data captured is true data and it's not contextual, but all data is contextual. One of the arguments um, I like to make is imagine if someone took all of your Instagram posts of you with a glass of alcohol in it. Maybe you only post once a month, but if they were to present that in a court of law to argue if you're an unfit parent without any perhaps time stamps related to it, could it be argued that you are an alcoholic? Data is super contextual. So arguing that you have nothing to hide or you aren't afraid of being watched sort of assumes that you have, or rather it creates this sort of false paradigm that you can sort of see how that's going to be used in any argument. You have no idea. But also it assumes that um, that whatever is being captured is like the whole slice of the story and it's often not. There's so many other things. And then this doesn't even get into, you know, the deeper problems of um, the quality of images, for example, where someone can look like someone else or facial recognition, which isn't accurate. Um, you know, there's so many canonical studies on this, particularly the one with Tim and Chebru and Joy Balami, which found that um, people of color and like women, um, that facial recognition systems have a harder time recognizing race and gender, right? So it's less accurate on women and people of color, right? Well, that's a very large part of the population and a particularly large part of the New Orleans population. So I think that there's all these misconceptions, again, around what data is and what it does, and when, or that data is truthful. It's just, you know, it's like a snapshot of an equation. It's a snapshot of truth, right? But it's not the entire thing that happened. Yeah, I wanted to say a couple of things. I mean, I think the first, just to respond to the question, um, you know, that I have nothing to, people might think, oh, I have nothing to hide, let them look. You know, I don't think that this is a, an issue that is specific to any sort of constituency or any group in the United States. I think that every single person has a line in which government searches overstep into a, into a place of tyranny, right? If you ask someone, should the police be able to come into your home at 3 a.m. and search your home for no reason as a routine check. A lot of people would say no. If you ask, should the police be able to pull whoever they want off the street and, and strip search them, most people would say probably no. So I think that for every single person, there's some line at which they, you know, they want to establish, you've invaded my privacy and that shouldn't be allowed. Then the question is, how do we you know, decide collectively as a society where that line is? And I think that this project, more than anything, we're trying to establish that we don't know enough, that there isn't enough information for us to have that conversation. And so whether you know you tend to be on the, the a little bit more of a pro-law enforcement side or a, a law enforcement reform side of the to, of this political spectrum, I, again, I think no matter who you are, you, you, you have a stake in this and you do have an opinion that you, know, you have privacy that should be upheld. And then again, to piggyback off Caroline, um, in terms of how data can be contextual, you know, I, I think a really good example of that, body cameras are, are a really good example um, of how footage captured by body cameras can be used for different purposes depending on who's in control. And so one criticism of body cameras is that the footage tends to be controlled by the police and by the government, um, which means that footage tends to be released when it's 
convenient for the police or for the government. Um, so, you know, you'll see this, you, you'll see that body cam footage, you know, after there's a high profile incident, if the footage shows something untoward, something that, that, you know, maybe shows civil rights infraction, it could be years before the public actually gets a view of this, or you may never see it at all. Um, when it comes to surveillance footage, surveillance footage is, is deleted after, or New Orleans surveillance footage is deleted after 30 days. So that's again contextual because the police and the government are, are in control of the camera system, which means that if there is footage that will be useful to their case or to whatever investigation they're doing, they can flag that footage and make sure it's not deleted. Now, if I'm now being charged with a crime two months later, I can't access those same cameras to prove my alibi someplace else because the footage is already deleted. So again, it's not having more accurate information. It's not necessarily just unbiased, you know, we're, we're seeing a clearer picture, a more truthful picture, um, you know, you really have to think about who's in control of these systems and, and, and kind of what their goal is. And when it comes to the police and prosecutors, their goal is to arrest people and, and, and charge them with crimes and convict them. And public defenders, you know, defense attorneys don't have the same access. I don't have the same access as, a, as just a resident of this city. So, uh, you know, like Caroline says, it's not just because it's data doesn't make it objective. And one thing to just sort of add to a lot of things that have come out in, you know, post, uh, post the Snowden leaks and around the amount of data that was being collected by the NSA. Um, one thing that a few security researchers had pointed out, and um, one of them, I'm blanking on his name, but he actually helped write some of the code that the NSA was using. He's retired now, but he was saying that there, so much data has been collected that it's all noisy, that there isn't any way to find actually useful signals in the noise. And I think that that's one thing I would want to impart on listeners as well, that um, the solution isn't to have all the, all the surveillance and then archive all of the footage for, for forever and make it make it open. Sometimes that like in this, in this era or state of um, mass surveillance, we're actually, we're collecting too many things for it to actually be useful and helpful in terms of, I guess, try, trying to honor, uh, counteract crime. And that's just something, one of the things I took away from the Snowden revelations and research into into the NSA was was mainly that. And that's something I'd really want to impart on readers, or listeners, rather, to think about. Yeah, and I, I actually just want to bring up one last thing that I think we should mention, which is that, again, if we're, you know, if we're talking about the I have nothing to hide aspect of this, I think that's something to keep in mind is that you know, maybe you don't have anything to hide, but maybe your neighbor does. Um, and I think that that's something to keep in mind in this conversation is that a lot of people have not been historically targeted by the criminal justice system. And some groups of people have, you know, I, I don't think it's very com uh, controversial anymore to say that the criminal justice system has been historically racially biased. Um, I think that's fairly well established. We cover you know, at, at least one case in our story where it's not like we're dealing with a perfect criminal justice system, right? I don't think almost anyone, you know, looks at the American uh, carceral system and says, yep, this is exactly right and exactly how it should be. But I think that recognizing that the unequal impact of the criminal justice system is important in this conversation as well. Well, to underscore the complexity is the breadth, the depth, the length of time you spent, the length of the piece. It's extraordinary, this work that you all did. Caroline Cinders, thank you for your work and thanks so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. Michael Isaac Stein with The Lens. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Caroline. This is Neighborhoods Watched, a special edition of Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. 
This project was produced by Lens reporter Michael Isaac Stein and researcher and designer Caroline Sinders. Project website design by Winnie Yeo. You can read the full story along with the week's other news at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.